0: That's a pretty good start to our, uh, our Sunday. Like, I'm already full. So, all right, so we're, uh, we're going to be continuing with our study of these names of God or titles of God. We only have a couple weeks left of this. Today, we're going to be looking at Jesus, the title of Jesus is the Son of Man. Treb looked at, at Christ as the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords last weekend. Today, as we look at the Son of Man, and, and next week, Treb is going to go into uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God, and then finally Christ is the Alpha and Omega. This study has been just, for, for Treb and I, it's just personally been just a delight. Uh, because as you dig into these names and titles that, that have been revealed to us in the Bible, we just just thinking about and learning and understanding and comprehending more of who God is. And to know God is to love Him. And people who don't know God... Well, how can you love what you do not know? And those who say I, have no, I hate God, they, they do not know Him. And so, the more that you know who God is, the more you discover about His character and His His heart. You just it draws you in. And so it's, been, it's been a delight. And so, but it's also sometimes been a challenge, like today uh, or with with this title, Son of Man. You look at. Um, you start doing word searches, you start doing the, the Bible study, the work of, of pulling things, of, of the exposition in the, in the text. And the phrase son of man happens just a whole lot in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, it's used for, especially in the book of Ezekiel, to talk about someone's humanity. God refers to Ezekiel over and over and over again. The Lord says to me, son of man, do such and such. And it's almost like mere human. You know, you are, you're the, in Hebrew would be Ben Adam, the son of Adam, right? This is where C.S. Lewis gets the phrase, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, right? This idea that we are humanity, made in God's image, image bearers of the creator. And it's used over and over again in the Old Testament until you come up to Daniel chapter 7, which is Daniel's, is an incredible, incredible book, practically speaking, and and, uh, just historically speaking, Daniel was an incredible human unbelievably faithful, faithful servant who went through terrible difficulty. And him and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story of their faithfulness in the fiery furnace and in, and in the lion's den and, and this, in, in the trial and the tribulation of being pulled out of their homeland and, and, and brought into Babylon. It's remarkable. If you've never studied Daniel, please dig in there and read it. It's also in uh, a, a prophetic or apocalyptic book where Daniel is given visions of things that are future. And in the context of one of those visions is where we get Daniel 7. This is where the phrase Son of Man comes from. And your version, most versions of the Bible have this title Son of Man capitalized, as we'll see here in a minute. And then Jesus is going to pick up this title in the Gospels. And so we're going to kind of trace this thread through that and spend most of our time today in the Gospels. But in order to get the background context for it, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 7. So what's going on in here is is Daniel is, uh, he's uh, Belteshazzar is the king of Babylon, and Daniel has these dreams. And in this dream, there are these beasts that he sees. One looks like a lion, one looks like a bear, one looks like a leopard, and then there's this giant, really big, scary beast. And then in this vision of this dream that he has, the Ancient of Days comes up and comes to judge, and his throne is, is magnificent and terrifying, thousands upon thousands of Angels are attending him, fire, and it is just magnificent. And the court receded and the books are opened. And the, the Ancient of Days judges these beasts and takes authority from them. And then in this vision, in verse 13, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. His approach, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority or, uh, or dominion, glory, and a kingdom or sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Theologically and doctrinally speaking, this is a massively important verse, and it helps us to comprehend and interpret other apocalyptic literature in the Bible. But in the context of this, Daniel has this dream. You've got these things that look like these other things. One looks like a bear, a lion, etc. And then their authority is stripped, and someone else shows up in this vision. He looks like, a, looks like a man, looks like a person. And he's given these things, authority or dominion, glory, and then a kingdom or sovereign power, meaning uh, uh, with the authority, you then have somewhere to reign. You have been given a kingdom. And after that, the response is that all peoples, nations, and men. So you have peoples, which is like a, a, an ethnic Um, delineation. Nations is political and, and men of every language linguistic. They all, all these things that separate humans, our language, our politics, our ethnicity, all those things come together and what do they do? They worship him. Some versions say obey, some versions say serve him, but they're all doing it. And then look, his dominion doesn't ever end. He's given an eternal kingdom. So and uh, if you keep reading in Daniel 7, Daniel, you know, begs this angel, please tell me what's going on. Poor Daniel has a lot of these crazy dreams. And then he's like, what in the world is going on? And this angel will give him an interpretation. These beasts are earthly kingdoms. And then in comes this son of man. And the authority is taken away from these earthly kingdoms. And then authority is given to this son of man in the anci- uh, as he approaches the Ancient of Days. And he's given an, a sovereign power over Everything of the earth, all the authority is taken away from these earthly kingdoms and given to this figure. So Jews, when they read the Old Testament, this figure, this son of man was messianic. He was the Messiah. He was coming. So if you roll forward to the Gospels, it is Jesus' favorite title. The one he uses more often than any other title for himself. Uh, Other people don't call him the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man. Oftentimes it's in uh, in third person, as we'll see here in just a second. But it was so much, I had a really hard time coming up with an idea, and you'll have to excuse me for the alliteration, but I came up with a bunch of R words that help us to kind of frame around some of the things that the title Son of Man is describing. So first, the Son of Man is describing Jesus' reign. It's describing his rejection. His ransom, His resurrection, and His return. And we're going to get into the, uh, uh, the uh, components of this here in just a second. But His reign, His rejection, His ransom, His resurrection, and His return. Obviously, the Son of Man encompasses far more than that. But for our purposes today, these five things are kind of going to guide us through some of the things that this title of Jesus teaches us about who He is. Okay, so in order to do that, we're going to look at what Jesus did. And we're going to start in Matthew 12. I'm going to be all over the Gospels today, all over the New Testament. Feel free to come along. I'll tell you where we're going, and I'll give you a second to get there. But if you want to just listen and mark it down and check me and make sure that I'm actually reading what's in there, always do that. And uh, if I'm not reading or if I'm saying something that's not biblical, you can throw your Bible at me or come tackle me off the stage. So, only kind of half-joking. But in Matthew 12, Jesus is walking with his disciples through these grain fields on the Sabbath, and they're eating, uh, picking heads off off of the grain, eating it. And the Pharisees see this. And they're like, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. They were they're harvesting, quote unquote, on the Sabbath. And then of course they dig into Jesus. Haven't you read? They went, all right. Jesus, excuse me, says, you know, didn't you read that when David was hungry and his companions were there that they entered the house of God and took the consecrated bread? And Jesus kind of throws it back at them and says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's no more important thing in the life of a Jew than the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. You could not be a faithful Jew and not keep the Sabbath. And so they created all of these external additional rules to make sure that they were doing the right thing. Like if you weren't allowed to plow, you couldn't drag a chair a certain distance across the floor because it would, it would dig up uh, the earthen floor and it was like you're plowing. And so they came up with all these additional things that God did not put in his law And Jesus comes up to them and they say, hey, you guys are eating on the Sabbath. And Jesus looks at them and says, the Lord, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he's grabbing this title. So then he goes from there into the synagogue. And there's a man with a shriveled hand there. And they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're trying to pin him in. And he says, if any one of you have a sheep, it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Then you should get it out. And he says, therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and was completely restored. So he comes in and Jesus is saying, the Son of Man has authority, reign, over the Sabbath. Over the thing that you hold most important in your religious life, the Son of Man has authority over that. And when he tells them, I tell you, one, one greater than the temple is here. He's giving almost this, there are some veiled things that Jesus is saying here to these guys that they're not exactly going to kill him yet. But that happens, that changes very quickly. So if you jump to Matthew chapter two, in this one, Jesus is in, in Capernaum and we're in chapter two, verse one. Excuse me, Mark. Mark chapter two, verse one. Getting confused here. Lots of lots of M words in the Bible. So Mark chapter two, verse one. Thanks, Jenny. It's the reason I got, got married. Can't even preach without her. So a few days later, it's Mark chapter two. Two, verse one. whatever I'm saying here, Mark chapter two, verse one, that's where we're at. <laughs> a few days later, Jesus is in Capernaum, and he's in this house and he's teaching, and these guys can't get their paralyzed friends there. For his friend, they're coming, and they dig a hole through the roof and they lower him down. And when Jesus sees this, sees this in verse five, it says, "Jesus saw their faith, and he said, "To the paralytic, "Son, your sins are forgiven, and the teachers of the law there lose their minds." They're thinking to themselves, what is he talking about? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the situation, they're in this house. They come through the roof. Jesus looks at this paralyzed guy and says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows their thoughts, and he says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's he's claiming this title as the Son of Man. He says to the paralytic, I'll tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he gets up, takes his mat, walks home in full view of all of them. And everyone was amazed. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So Jesus is demonstrating his authority and his reign. In this instance, just over two things, over the, over the Sabbath and over sin. He's claiming the title of the Son of Man and then saying that I have the authority to forgive sin. Remarkable things that Jesus is saying. If anybody, by the way, if you're talking with somebody and they say that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible, just have them read it. Just have them read it and say, that's great. Would you read John with me? And then after you get through the book of John, say, what do you think? And read through the gospels with them and it is as clear as day that Jesus claims divinity. He claims equality with God. Okay, so in the Son of Man, he has a reign and Jesus claims this reign or this authority. He's also rejected. So we're going to look at Luke nine eighteen. Luke nine. So we're, this is the uh, the story of Peter's confession, where Jesus is they're up there and they're trying to get away. And he asks them in the in the account in Matthew, Jesus actually asks them and says, "Who do they say that the who do they say the Son of Man is?" Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they say some say John, others say Elijah, and still others, prophets. And then he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then warns them, and he says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day, he is to be raised to life. And then he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit himself. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. It's incredible things that Jesus is claiming, right? He's tying himself back to this figure in Daniel. And he's saying, not only are these things going to happen, yes, I am the Christ, but I'm going to be rejected. And um, back in Mark 14, this is starting in Mark 14, 57, we see this rejection. Mark 14, 57. He's before this trial, before the religious leaders of Israel, and it's this sham of a trial, as we'll see here. It says then some of them stood up and gave this false testimony about him. They said, "We've heard him say, "I will destroy this man-made temple in three days and in three days we'll build another not made by man." And yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and said to Jesus, "Are you not going to answer?" What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And it is as a direct question as he could give them. And Jesus says, I am. And then he says this, You will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He is saying, I am the one from Daniel. And you see their response. So the high priest tore his clothes and said, we do not need any more witnesses. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And they spit on him and blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy, and the guards took him and beat him. Jesus was rejected. And this part of his title as the son of man is, that even though he has authority to reign over the entirety of creation, he will be rejected by the very people that he came to save. He was rejected by the Jews, and he was rejected by everyone. Jesus says later on in Mark, or excuse me, earlier on in Mark, he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. This is Mark 10:45. Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His will look at it next week as Christ is the Lamb of God. Jesus was the atoning or propitiatory sacrifice, meaning he died in our place on the cross. Instead of you and I taking on the penalty of my sin, Jesus took on our penalty and he died on the cross. He was ransomed for us. He paid the price so that we could have our freedom. So as the son of man, he has reign. He is rejected. He is ransomed. And then, of course, he... As we've looked at already in Mark, when he's talking to the disciples after he asks them who, who, who he is, he says that he's going to suffer many things, then he's going to die, and then he's going to raise again on the third day, which is a remarkably ludicrous thing for anybody to say about themselves, unless they actually do it. Jesus prophesies about his own resurrection and says, not only will I be rejected and be killed, but I will raise from the dead after three days. And then he does it. You can say lots and lots of things as a person. You can have lots of crazy cult leaders. You can have lots of people in history who have done all of these things. Only one died and then rose again when he said he would and rose himself from the dead. Only one. So the Son of Man has reigned. He has has been rejected. He was ransomed. He was resurrected. And then most importantly, he's going to return. And if we look... In Mark 13, so Jesus is uh, answering this question from his disciples, and it's this, uh, this wonderful uh, apocalyptic chapter in Mark. And at the end of it, in verse, oh, let's say 20. I get too much context for it, but uh, 22. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if they are possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. Jesus is returning Part of this title of the Son of Man is not that he is just, that he just came and he did something. It's not only that he just has authority, but if you look back at Daniel, what is it that Jesus was given? Well, he was given authority, he was given glory, and he was given sovereign power. But then, what is the response to what Jesus is given in this vision? All peoples, every ethnic group, all nations, every political group, and men of every language did what? Worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When I first started looking at this idea of the Son of Man and and this this image of him being as a human, I I thought I was gonna go on this this trail of, of the humanity of Jesus. But as you look at all these all these things that as Jesus claims this title of Son of Man and and gives it to himself and all the things that are tied into it, he's talking about himself as Lord. He is the Son of Man, meaning he has authority to reign and rule over all of us. So the next question is okay. So what is our response? It's another R word. See how that works. So. What is our response to this truth about who Jesus is? Because he's claimed that I have authority. He's claimed that I have all these things. Uh, the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to raise people from the dead. And he's claimed that he is going to return. So how do we respond? I mentioned earlier that different versions translate that word worship differently. Some say obey. Some say serve. That every, all peoples, nations, and men of every language obeyed, worshiped, and served him. I think that if we're going to end up anywhere with a response to Jesus, it is that that is the only reasonable response to who he has revealed to us as the Son of Man. It is that we should worship him, that we should obey him, and that we should serve him. Regarding worshiping the Lord, the the difficulties of life and stress reveal idols that we have. Um, like Trevor mentioned earlier, Deacon's been sick, and he's not usually a sick kid, and he's missed a whole bunch of school, and it's been just stressful for our family. If you've ever had a sick kid, you know what it's like. If you've ever been sick, you know how stressful it is. And as you start missing school, it just compiles and, and layers stress and stress and stress. And so we thought he was getting better, and then something it was Thursday. and Life is hard anyway, just getting kids up and ready, getting ready in the morning, there's just a lot going on in our life, but in all of our lives, life is hard. You, have to, you get tired, you get sick, things break, you've got to pay bills, you've got to be adult, you've got to maintain. Gotta, life is not easy. So he gets up in the morning, we're all trying to scramble around, and get lunches packed, and get uh, breakfast shoved in the mouth hole, and get teeth brushed, and all these things. So, and he's getting ready, he's stressed, he's brushing his teeth, and he starts getting sick again. And he starts crying. And he's just so... Discouraged. And Jenny starts just encouraging him and praying for him. And, and I just lose it. Just tired. Um, yes, start yelling at the other three kids. We're just trying to get ready for school. It doesn't go well. The whole thing comes off the rails. Deacon goes back into his room, and gets sick again. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I've got to pray for this kid. And like if I open my mouth, I'm gonna cry. I can't, be, can't cry, I've got to be strong. So I get bring it together and pray for him and walk into out of his room and I just get really, really mad at the Lord. Why are you letting this happen? Why isn't my kid sick? This is hard. Why are you doing this to us? We're trying to be faithful. Why is he any better? You can heal him. You're the Lord. Why? And I get, this is all going on in my head. I'm not saying any of this. I mean, but I am, in my head, I'm saying things I, I've never actually said out loud. I was furious at Jesus for about 30 seconds. Really, really mad walking down the hallway. I mean, like seething. And the verse that comes into my mind is he says, this, this, this verse from Job 38, where he says, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? And it's like, it's just gut check back into place. Excuse me, beloved son. Who am I again? You don't get to talk to me that way. He is gracious and he is kind. He didn't like zap me with a lightning bolt. He didn't just kill me, which he can, by the way. See it all over the Bible. The Lord thinks you should be taken out. Lord just takes you out. The sons of Eli were wicked. Lord just took them out. Happens all over the Bible. You know why? Because he's God. He gets to do stuff. We don't get to say, you can't do it because we're not God. So he reminds me who he is. So I go into the bedroom, I close the door, and I have it out with the Lord. And he revealed to me that stress reveals my idols. One of them is an idol of control, that I think I can control everything in my life. Everything goes well, do all the things, dot all the, uh, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, get all the lunches ready, everybody do, do, pray all the things, do all the stuff, that life will be fine. And that's a lie. It's a total lie. I'm not in control of those things. I cannot control the bacterias zooming around my son's body. What? I can take him to the doctor. I can pray. I can trust the Lord. And in the process of difficulty and stress, my response is always and only to worship, not to rail against him. Now, in his grace, he allows me to do that. And in his grace, he doesn't allow me to do it for long. He brings me back and he corrects me and he rebukes me. And he says, Don't worship control. It also revealed that uh, children are a very easy idol. If your kids are doing well, then we are doing well. It's a real slippery slope to be on because last time I checked, kids are humans, just like me. And we are not flawless. (laughs) We make mistakes. We make grave mistakes. We sin on purpose. We hurt people because we want to. (sighs) But children... All over the world, in particular in the American culture, are often idolized. If my child is fine, I will do everything, I will expend everything. I will lift this child up, and as this child succeeds, then I receive glory. Well guess what? That's called an idol, and God does not like those. He's supposed to be worshipped alone by us. No child or person should be worshipped, only God himself. So. A response to Jesus as the son of man is to worship him and experience the freedom that comes from worship. As we release all of those things, we are able to then receive the the peace and the hope and the guidance and the grace that I need to endure the difficulty that's revealed all the junk to begin with. So worship him. Second is to obey. Um, Why should we obey the Lord? Well, basic Bible principle is that obedience brings blessing. Blown out to wrong proportions is is that obedience means that God will give me a Ferrari. It's not what that means. God blesses in a whole bunch of ways, sometimes monetarily, uh, usually in ways that are more important than money. But a principle of, of obedience is that obedience brings blessing. Like when we walk with the Lord, life is better. It just is. Children have been given under their parental authority over them. That's why God tells children to honor their father and mother and to do what they say. The reason he does that is because it teaches children, I have authority over me and if I walk in authority, this is all the context of no abuse and of of godly parenting, all these things. But it's a rabbit trail we're not going to go down. All things going well, uh, children obey their parents and it goes well for them. It's an incredible promise that's in the Ten Commandments. Children obey and honor their parents. They have a long life because their parents don't take them out and things go well with them. So, I'll thank you for laughing about that, by the way, for parents who, uh, when I'm talking about actually hurting children. Anyway, so, a child has a limited authority in their life. A child can choose to disobey. Yeah? If you've ever been around kids, or you, everybody in here was a kid, and if you've seen a kid, kids don't always obey their parents. I didn't always obey my parents. Goodness gracious. My kids don't always obey me. No child always obeys their parents. We have a choice to do it. They have limited authority to obey or disobey. They do not have authority to control the consequences. This is another principle of life that comes out of obedience. In the same with God, I have the option to disobey God. I have the option to just, I mean walk totally out of line with what Jesus wants for me. So we talked about a couple weeks ago walking in the light, walking as children of light. I have the option and the freedom to walk in absolute disobedience to the light of the Word of God. Realize that? Go for it, everybody. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Just go for it. Go down to the whatever. Please don't, by the way. But the idea of you have that freedom. You do not have the freedom to control the consequences. Like, I've got the freedom to go and drink a six-pack of whatever and drive somewhere and be drunk. You do. You do not have the freedom to control the consequences when you get in a wreck and kill someone. You go to jail, hopefully for the rest of your life, if you make it we have the freedom and the limited authority to choose to obey or disobey the Lord. But he will bring consequences. Why? Because like with a parent and their child, consequences and discipline teach a child the right way to go. And when we walk in disobedience to the Lord, he gives us consequences to teach us, this is not a good way. There is a better way. It is my way. I am the son of man. I have authority. I have reign. I died for you. I'm coming back walk in the way that I lay out for you. Obedience is the application of our faith. If I say that I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I choose to walk in disobedience to the clear commandment of his word, I'm just demonstrating that I don't really believe what I said I believe. So if you claim that Christ is your Lord, if you say, I believe they died on the cross and rose from the dead, I have, I have um, repented of my sin and I've turned to Christ and I've said, Lord Jesus, save me. And I've been saved and I've been redeemed and, and re- regenerated by the Holy Spirit and made new and I'm a new creature and I'm walking in Christ and I claim that he has Lord over my life, that he has sovereign authority over all that I say and do and think. And then I look at God's word and it says, love your neighbor. And I'm like, the neighbor's a super jerk. I refuse to love him. I'll choose to hate him instead then don't claim that Christ is your Lord if you're not going to walk in obedience to his word. Don't do it. You can't have it both ways. The only proper response to Christ as the son of man is to obey him and to walk in obedience to him. So worship, obedience, and finally service. So Jesus, I and mean, he shatters all of the preconceptions of what people think a leader should look like. And in Philippians chapter 2, we already mentioned this a little bit, where he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The principle for this final point is that um, God exalts the servant. It's how he works. And in Philippians chapter 2, I'm just going to start in verse 1 and kind of read through 11 because it's just amazing. Philippians 2, 1 says this, this is Paul writing to the Philippians, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, basically, if Jesus matters to you at all, if any tenderness, or excuse me, then make my joy complete by being what? Like-minded, having unity, having the same love, being of one Spirit and of purpose. And then he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider each other's, each other better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. And then he says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, this kenosis, this emptying, taking the very nature of a servant to be made in human likeness and being found in human appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross Jesus models obedience for us. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, does this sound familiar? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Son of Man. This is the Son of Man in in Daniel chapter 7. That every knee will bow. And he models what humility looks like. Why? Because service is the highest office in the kingdom of God. That's why we named our oldest son Deacon. He was a constant uh, thorn in his poor side. <laughs> and we're like, remember, your name's a servant. You're supposed to serve everybody. The idea that the entire economy of God is flipped upside down from what the world says. The world does not exalt the servant, it doesn't just live in it for a while. The servant gets stepped on. Thrown to the side. In the kingdom of God, those who serve the king are exalted. The last will be first and the first will be last. So, as you look at how do I live out, how do I actually engage, how do I apply the reality that Jesus is the Son of Man, all these things, well, you serve other people. And Paul tells us what that looks like. Look not only for your own interests, but look out for the interests of other people. As you encounter humans, as you run into somebody at work, did you see somebody at the grocery store? Did you see a neighbor? Did you see somebody in your household? Just think, that person is more important than me. How can I show them that? How can I serve that person and honor them? How can I treat that person in such a way that they can comprehend their value in my eyes and more importantly, in the eyes of God? Can you imagine if all of us were actually just doing that all the time? You've all these little... Hundred little lights out shining brightly in your workplaces when you go to the post office, in the grocery store, in your own homes, with your parents, with your grandparents, with your kids, with your uncles, with everybody. And that my job in life as I go through life is in walking to submission to the Son of Man is to serve another person. That I can apply the faith that I claim in Jesus by serving others well. What a gift! And you know what? God exalts the servant and he will exalt you. Maybe not now, but for sure in glory. He's paying attention. And when Jesus returns, he's coming back to judge us by what we've done. Do you realize that? Now, there are two different thrones. This is a little bit of a tangent here. It's the throne of judgment for Jesus, where the great white throne, where the only thing that matters is do you trust in Jesus? Have you been redeemed by the Lamb? And then there's a seat that's called the, 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 the Bema seat of Christ, where he will look at believers and he will judge the works that we've done. The reason that that is beautiful is because the things that we do in secret, he sees that when you choose, when you're in a fight with your husband and you're like, mm-hmm, he's wrong, but I'm going to choose to serve him anyway. God sees that. When you're at your work and your boss is being a jerk, and you're like, mm-hmm, and you choose to instead say, Jesus is the son of man. He has reign and rule and authority over my life. I can serve my boss even when he's a jerk. God sees that and he will reward you for it. And so that when you, or you can apply that anywhere because the world is full of jerks and I'm in the world. Therefore, I'm one sometimes. We all need someone to treat us like that. And it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And when we are kind to someone and serving them has an incredible uh, effect on their heart to return them to say, man, I'm being a jerk and they're being kind, I wonder why. And I'm not kidding, it actually works that way because God is good and he's kind and he rewards us when we're faithful. I want to end here with uh, looking at forward to this return of Jesus. I love the book of Revelation. Never be afraid of the book of Revelation. I don't know what the whole thing means, by the way. I don't have all the answers to all of the many, many questions that come when I read the book. But I know that the very first five words of the book are the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the point of the book of Revelation. It's not necessarily to have a timetable of all these things. I love digging into those things, get into the weeds, read the books, love it. Revelation reveals Christ to us. And in chapter 1, there's John, who I can't wait to meet someday. Isn't that cool? We get to meet John. We get to meet David. We get to meet lots of people, but it's very cool. You're like, thanks for writing Revelation. That must have been hard because you really saw a lot of crazy things. So he says this in chapter one. I'm just going to start in in verse uh, four. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was, who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits before the throne, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, This is Jesus and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, see reign, rule, authority and priests to do what? Serve his God and father. To him be glory. To see all this, all this is tied in service, glory and power and authority forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds. He is tying this ark from Daniel, the son of man who's coming in authority to judge the kingdoms of the earth and to judge humanity. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all of the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and is to come, the Almighty. This is Jesus He is the Son of Man. And the only, and I mean the only responses we have to him, the only right response is to worship, obey, and to serve. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for your kindness to us. So grateful, Lord Jesus, that you indeed came to save us and that you continue to teach us through your word about who you are. These things are deep, Lord. These things are complex. These things are hard, and I thank you, Lord Jesus, for that the great, infinite beauty of the Word of God. And as we turn to it again and again and again and again and again, that we never exhaust the resource that is there. It is like a vast ocean and our toes are just barely in it. And we can return and never exhaust it to come and receive encouragement, correction, instruction, that we would grow in the knowledge of who you are. I pray, Lord Jesus, for... Each of us here, as we wrestle with the reality that you are the Son of Man, that you came and you have a reign, that you were rejected, that you are our ransom, you died for us, that you rose from the dead, and that you are indeed returning, that we would live our life in light of that truth, that you are Lord forever, and that our only response to you, Lord Jesus, should be to worship. And what a gift it is. Help us to lay aside the things that hinder us from doing that well. Help us, Lord Jesus, to lay aside the things that hinder us from walking in obedience to you. If we are afraid, overwhelm our fear with your goodness. If we are worried, overwhelm our worry with your care. If we are sinful, Lord, rooted out of us, correct us and rebuke us in love and lead us in the everlasting way. Help us to walk with you, Lord Jesus, as we worship you, the Son of Man, and we serve and love and obey, desperately awaiting your return. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down, and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? So open up
0: another sermon, but I get really excited when I sing that song. Okay, Um, real quickly, if you're a life group leader, uh, we're meeting in the back, so go back there. And um, just want to end with this encouragement to you. The Son of Man has came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, so that you can then give your life, you can pour out your life in Christ's power for other people. So go and do it this week, and then watch what he does, and go in peace.